praise God. Indeed, faith family, we have a gospel to proclaim that indeed he is God. Death is very sobering. A few years ago, I attended a graveside funeral for a family member of someone on our pastoral staff. And as I stood there in the hot Alabama sun, before me was a sea of tombstones. And beneath my feet were men and women, boys and girls, whose eternity had been sealed. It was decided. There was not another second chance. And the weightiness of that moment was the reality that their eternity, for those people, it had been settled. They were either in heaven celebrating with Jesus or they were in hell in eternal torments. Do you see how significant the gospel is? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, the gospel is so simple to understand. It's the very power of God to rescue anyone and everyone who turns away from sin and trusts in Jesus by faith. Well, before his ascension back up into heaven, Jesus gave his disciples the primary task of what they were to be doing once he returned back to the Father. And in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we have what's called the Great Commission. The text says, where Jesus declared to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age." You see, the mission of Jesus is for the gospel to go forth, disciples to be made among all people groups around the world. The Great Commission is not a suggestion, but a command from our King. And we accomplish this task not under our own power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, as those who have been rescued by Jesus, we have the privilege, the honor, and the responsibility of telling the world the good news of what Jesus has done through his death and through his resurrection. And that anyone who believes and trusts in him will be saved from eternal death. Is there anything more important than this? Is there anything more important than preparing every person on planet Earth for eternity? You see, all of us have a role to play. The Great Commission is for all Christians, no exceptions. The Great Commission is not 
Christ's marching orders only for ministers or only for missionaries. It is his command for all believers. And Westwood, we all have a role to play to spread the gospel to the nations and our neighbors. Westwood, we exist to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. The great commission of making disciples of all nations, this is the primary purpose of the church. There are far too many churches who have taken their eyes off of the primary task and responsibility that Jesus has left for us to do. We're about disciple making. We make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. This is how Jesus designed the church, the function. So how do we do that? The question I want us to answer this morning is, how can all of us obey Jesus' command to make disciples? How can I, a stay-at-home mom, a business owner, a widower, a teacher, a college student, a sixth grader, a salesman, how can I fulfill the Great Commission? Over the next three weeks, we're looking in the New Testament at three ways that all of us together can be a part of fulfilling the Great Commission. And it's summarized in three simple words, pray, give, go. This morning, I want us to see how praying Luke 10.2 enables all of us to play an important role in fulfilling the Great Commission. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning in the Bible, I want to invite you to go out into the atrium after the service and take time to stop by some of those tables. Connect with some of those ministry partners and missionaries and find out where you as a believer, where your family or your life group can lock arms and serve alongside them. You see, part of the purpose of this three-week series is to mobilize our entire church to be serving and living on mission, both locally and around the world. You know, what's interesting about the Gospel of Luke is that it's volume one of a two-volume set. Luke goes with the book of Acts. Luke is the author of both of these books. They go together in tandem. He tells us in Luke chapter one, verses one through four, that he his purpose of writing was to give an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And he says, I'm writing to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is probably a very wealthy man who financially undergirded the work of Luke to do the work of getting all of the evidence that points to Jesus. This is a man who wanted to know more about Jesus and the validity of the gospel that he had heard. And we get to Acts chapter one, we see where Theophilus is brought again, where Luke is saying, Theophilus, I have now not only talked about Jesus, I've explained all that he has done. I want you to see what's happened after his ascension in the birth of the early church. What's interesting about Luke as a doctor is that he continually holds up Jesus as the healer. He holds up Jesus as the one who performed the miraculous. It's amazing as you study the text that whereas the gospel of Matthew is primarily trying to reach Jews for Christ, Luke is primarily trying to reach Gentiles for Christ. And leading up to chapter 10, Jesus has been doing ministry in the northern territory of Galilee. We see in Luke 9, verses 1 through 6, Jesus has already sent out the 12 apostles to preach and to heal the sick. But then you get to chapter 9, verse 51, and we see a pivot that takes place. 
It says, the days were coming to a close for Jesus to be taken up. So he determined to journey to Jerusalem. You see, Jesus knew that the time was coming for his death on the cross. And so before he goes to Jerusalem for his appointed crucifixion and resurrection, he prepares to visit towns on his trips south to preach and to heal and to point people to himself. And so he sends out 72 of his disciples to go into these towns and to prepare them for his arrival. In Luke chapter 10, verse one, the text says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Here in the text, we see Jesus sending out 72 men in pairs into every town and place where he was planning to go on his trip south to Jerusalem. 36 groups of two were sent by Jesus to prepare these people groups to meet Jesus. The question I had this week is that, is the number 72 significant? There are many who say yes, because it's a reference to the table of nations in Genesis 10, which represents people from every country of the world. So what Jesus may be laying out for us here is the mandate of going to every nation and preparing people to meet Jesus. In this text, we see Jesus sending these disciples out, and this is a picture of the fact that we too are sent to the nations. They were sent to prepare, verse one, for the arrival of King Jesus. We too, y'all, have been sent by King Jesus to prepare the nations for the arrival of Jesus. So you get the picture. These disciples, they were appointed and they were sent by Jesus to go and prepare the people for his arrival. Now, though this assignment, verse one, that Jesus is giving, it's for a specific time, it's for a specific place, a specific people as his ambassadors for Christ, is this not also what we are called to do in the Great Commission? You see, Christ's followers have been appointed and sent by Jesus as his ambassadors to prepare the world to meet Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador for the king. You see, missions begins with God. Jesus is the first and greatest missionary who left the glory of heaven to come to earth to rescue us from our sin. Jesus was sent by the Father to go and to save the perishing. Jesus left the glory and the comfort and the intimacy of heaven. And he came to a stinky, dangerous place in Bethlehem. Well, so too are we who belong to Jesus, called by him to go to a place that may be 
stinky, and dangerous so that we might declare the good news of what Christ has come to do for us in the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ our King. And so we go out as those who have been rescued by Jesus and we join him in his missionary work through the power of the Holy Spirit to go and to preach the good news of Christ of Christ crucified, buried, risen on the third day, who ascended back up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, where he is ruling and he is reigning over all things. And there is coming a day in which he will return to rescue his church. This is his gospel. This is what saves. And this is what we go and proclaim to the nations and to our neighbors. Now, we are those who have been sent by Jesus to go into every town and every place and prepare people to meet King Jesus. So that being the foundation, I want you to see here in the text three great commission realities. The first is this. Many people are ready. Many people are ready. Look at verse two. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus told this battalion of disciples, who are about to be sent to the towns of Israel, the harvest is abundant. Jesus is using agricultural language here to communicate a truth. He's saying, listen guys, there are a lot of people who are ready to believe. And they're waiting on you to come and tell them. Tell them the king is coming. Tell them to repent and to believe. May I say to you that the nations and our neighbors are ready. They're ready. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. That word for plentiful, verse two, it means many. It means abundant. The apostle John used this exact same word in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. Because John kept preaching the gospel and he would not remain silent, he was exiled on the island of Patmos. While he was there, Jesus showed up and pulled back the curtain on the future in which he got to see the future. And in Revelation 7, verse 9, John sees the future and he sees believers who belong to Jesus gathered around the throne. And listen to how he describes it. In Revelation 7, 9, he says, and after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude. Okay, same word Jesus is using here. Same word. Where are they from? People from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. If you belong to Jesus, this is you. John sees you at the throne. And I want to say to you, there's coming a day when people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered around the throne, a vast multitude that no one can number. This is our future if you belong to Jesus. And since this mission will be accomplished, the Great Commission will be fulfilled, the question is, Will you join Jesus in his mission? Will you be a part of God's heartbeat for the world? To see people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation come to know Jesus, to have their lives radically transformed by the good news of a crucified and risen Savior. You see, there are many people who are ready to hear and believe the gospel. The harvest is plentiful. 
This week, Jared Boyd, our student pastor, was invited by a local high school to come and to preach to the football team. So Wednesday morning, he stands up, preaches the gospel, and 11 teenage boys stand up and give their lives to Christ. Awesome. I got a text late Wednesday night from the athletic director just celebrating and thanking Jared and for our church and what God has done in the midst of that school. You see, the harvest is plentiful, y'all. There are many who are ready to respond to the gospel, to trust in Jesus. And it's going to be fulfilled, but the question is, will it be fulfilled through you? Will you be one in which you allow God, the Holy Spirit, to so work in your heart and your life that it compels you to go, to go to the nations, to go to your neighbors, and to proclaim the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. This is his top priority. He wants to see all nations come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Is there anything more important than this? We're preparing people for the moment when they step into eternity. Do you see the weight of what's happening here in the text? This is God's heartbeat, is to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. In John 4, Jesus has a conversation with the woman at a water well. And as he's talking with her, she begins to realize who she's talking to. Now, it was taboo, a big no-no for Jesus to talk in public with a sexually immoral woman like that. Once she realizes who she's talking to, she leaves her water jar and she makes a beeline to Sychar, her town. And she gets to the town square and she gives a testimony and an invitation. And she says, I met a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Y'all, Come with me. Meanwhile, Jesus and the disciples are at the water well, and the disciples are still curious why Jesus was talking in public with a woman, but they were all too scared to say anything. And they say, Jesus, we've had a long trip. Why don't you have something to eat? And he says, boys, I have food that you don't even know about. And the disciples start wondering, who brought Jesus Chick-fil-A? And he says, all right, guys, huddle up. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I came to do the work of the Father. And then here's what I imagine. Jesus pointing and saying, open your eyes. Look, the harvest. And out comes the woman with the entire town of Sychar marching out to Jesus. And he's saying, disciples, look, the priority of the Father, the harvest, it's ripe. Here it is. This is why we exist. It's not about food. It's about people. We want to see people come to know Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, here is the harvest. There are many who are ready to believe the gospel. And so as you're walking the hallways of Pelham and Thompson and Helena, as you're driving on 65, as you are walking through your neighborhood, as you are walking into your office complex, stop and hear the voice of Jesus say, look, the harvest. There are many who are ready to believe the gospel. The question is, will you and I open our mouths? 
Will we join Jesus in his mission of reaching as many people as possible with the gospel? The harvest is plentiful. It is abundant. There are many who will believe. May I say to you that Shelby County and the nations are waiting for the good news to come to them. So the first great commission reality is that many people are ready to believe the gospel, but second great commission reality, few will get to work. Verse two, Jesus says, but the laborers are few. While there are many people who are ready to believe the gospel and follow Christ, Jesus uses a conjunction. But, however, hold the phone, not so fast. Verse two, the laborers are few. You see, not having enough workers is not just a 21st century church issue. It's been around for millennia. In 1840, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, one of my heroes was born. She would grow up to be four foot three. Lottie Moon became a mighty weapon in the hand of King Jesus. For 39 years, she labored in China, preaching the gospel, caring for the poor, and giving her all for the people who have never heard of Jesus. And she would regularly write letters to the president of the International Mission Board of what it's called today, begging him to send more workers. In November 1st, 1873, she writes, what we need in China is more workers. The harvest is very great, the laborers oh so few. Why does the Southern Baptist Church lag behind in this great work? I think your idea is correct that a young man should ask himself not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is so plain, go. She goes on to say a year later, Oh, that we had active, zealous men who would go far and wide, scattering books and tracts and preaching the word to the vast multitudes of this land. Four years later, she wrote, but how inadequate our force. Here is a province of 30 million souls, and Southern Baptists can only send one man and three women to tell the story of redeeming love. Oh, that my words could be as a trumpet call, stirring the hearts of my brethren and sisters to pray, to labor, to give themselves to this people. We are now a very, very few feeble workers, scattering the grain broadcast according as time and strength permit. God will give the harvest, doubt it not, but the laborers are so few. Where we have four, we should have not less than 100. Are these wild words? They would not seem so were the church of God awake to her high privileges and her weighty responsibility. She writes, I'm trying honestly to do the work that could fill the hands of three or four women and in addition must do much work that ought to be done by young men. Our dilemma, to do men's work or to sit silent at religious services conducted by men just emerging from heathenism. She says in 1877, in the vast continent of Africa, we have two missionaries. In Japan, we have not one. 
In China, we have at present eight missionaries. Putting the population of China at 400 million, this gives one missionary for 50 million people. Yet we call ourselves missionary Baptists. Our Lord says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Are we obeying this command? Are you and I going to join Jesus on his mission of taking the gospel to every, every people and every tribe and every nation? Are we gonna join him on his missionary work of reaching people who have never heard the gospel? Billions of people right now have never heard of Jesus. If there's anything that should bother us, it's that. Far more than a scoreboard, far more than a report card, far more than our income, it's what are we gonna do about this? It's preparing people for eternity. And so the question we should be asking is not, should I go, but should I stay? The nations and our neighbors are headed for a Christless eternity. Feel the weight of that. Let it keep you up at night. Let it bother you to the point that it leads you to be compelled to do something. Charles Spurgeon said it so well. He said, Christians are either missionaries or imposters. Y'all, we got work to do. Today across the globe, there are billions who do not know Jesus. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, we must, number three, pray for more workers. Listen to what Jesus tells us to do. Verse two. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus commands the 72 to pray for more laborers to go into the harvest. Prayer is and must always be the first response of believers when facing a great need. We ask, we plead for the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest. We ask the Lord of the harvest to bring more hands to the field to bring in the harvest. Because reality is, just as unharvested crops die, unharvested souls die. The question is, how bad do you want the Great Commission to be fulfilled? The answer will be seen in the intentionality and the intensity of our prayers, of begging God to do what only he can do. And when you pray with desperation and in alignment with his word, he loves to show himself faithful. God loves to put his power and his glory on display. We wanna pray big prayers because God is a big God. We're not gonna waste our breath praying weak, small prayers. We're gonna ask for God to do what only he can do, and that's to change the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. This is the task that Jesus is calling us to. Listen to how the apostle Paul asked people to pray for him. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, in addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. 
In Ephesians 6, he says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. When you get to Romans 9 and Romans 10, we see the heart of the apostle Paul. In Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for my kinsmen according to the flesh. For I wish that I myself could be cut off from Christ so that they might be saved. He's saying, listen, I'm willing to give up my own salvation if only they would come to know Jesus. And he's saying it with tears in his eyes. And he goes on to say in Romans 10:1, it is my earnest desire and prayer to God that they might be saved. Question, who are you praying for to the point of tears? Who are you weeping for? Who are you begging for God to change their hearts and bring them to faith in Jesus? Is there anything more important for our prayer life? And though it is good and right and biblical to pray for the healing of our brothers and sisters, we must I feel far too often we are praying people out of heaven instead of praying people into heaven. If God answered all of your prayers this week with the answer, yes, how many people would be saved? This should change who we are and how we function. Jesus is saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray, pray, pray the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers, to raise up laborers. Pray for God to work in a way that only he can to bring people to faith in Jesus. Westwood, we have a field to harvest. God has strategically and providentially placed you in your community to impact people for Jesus. Your office is not primarily for your job, it's your harvest field. Your school is not your primary source of learning, it's your harvest field. Your home is not primarily where you live. It's your harvest field. God has put you on ball teams and in classes and in workplaces and in your neighborhood to engage people and to reach them for Jesus. He puts us in specific places at specific times for specific purposes. And it's for the sake of making Jesus known. And note here that Jesus is not commanding them to pray for big crowds. He's not saying pray for people who are going to be applauding and celebrating some great order. No, no, no. He's saying pray for workers, workers who will go, who will harvest. So Kenneth, how do I do that? How do I pray Luke 10 2? Let me give you five strategies for praying Luke 10 2. First is this, prayer walk your neighborhood. Prayer walk your neighborhood. Walk around your neighborhood and begin praying just for the different homes, the people who live there. Ask for the Lord to open their hearts to the gospel. If you're not strong enough or able to walk, drive your neighborhood. Except please pray with your eyes open. Pray for the Lord to work in the hearts of these people's homes. Number two, download Unreached of the Day app. Every morning at 9 a.m., I get a notification on my phone of a new people group that I'm gonna pray for. How amazing technology that we have. You have the ability every morning or whenever you set the notification to go off where you can pray specifically for people 
who have never heard of Christ. Number three, list five people who do not know Jesus and pray for them daily. Pray for people who don't know Christ. Before you go talk to someone about Jesus, talk to Jesus about that someone. Ask for God to soften their hearts. Ask for God to draw them into his kingdom. Ask for God to open their eyes, for him to be mighty to save. List out their names and you pray diligently. Number four, lead your family through Operation World. This is a book that you can buy online. I saw it for less than $2 this week. And it's a list of every country and how you can be specifically praying for those people throughout that land. Fifthly, place a map in your home to see who you're praying for. This not only teaches your children and grandchildren to think globally, but it also puts before them those who they need to be thinking about and praying for, reaching, in, reaching for in the gospel. The father of modern missions, his name is William Carey. He said this, to know the will of God, we need an open Bible and an open map. What great resources we have before us to pray Luke 10 to. Which leads to our impact point, it's this. Set your alarm to pray Luke 10.2 at 10.02. And if it goes off on a Sunday morning, I have no problem with that. We pray Luke 10.2 at 10.2. God, raise up laborers, raise up workers. God, would you send people to the field and God, would you send me? We pray Luke 10, 2. We pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And y'all, we have to be prepared to say yes. Because you very well may become the answer to your own prayers. We say, God, would you send someone? Yes, I will. I'm looking right at you. And so we pray with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, here am I. Send me. Because reality is, y'all, not long from now, unless Jesus returns, every single one of us are going to be six feet under. We may have a tombstone that the rest of the world goes right by. But why not invest your life into something that lasts longer than yourself? Give your life to the mission of God. And the mission is investing in people who will impact their world for Jesus. What can be better than that?